Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. Visitors to Yellowstone are witness to one of the most dramatic natural laboratories on the planet, which provides answers to the origin of life on Earth, to the diversification of life, to solutions to modern-day problems faced by society. On this episode, Brian talks with scientist Bruce Bauck about his study of Mammoth Hot Springs and how his research is applied to challenges faced by society now and in the future and how to use your visit to Yellowstone to better understand the cosmos that surround us. He also alleviates our concerns about an impending eruption of the Yellowstone supervolcano. I'm here with Bruce Falk. He's a professor of geology, genomic biology, and microbiology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He's the author, along with photographer Tom Murphy, of The Art of Yellowstone Science, Mammoth Hot Springs as a Window on the Universe. Uh, his study of mammoth is applied to challenges faced by society now and in the future. So, Bruce, welcome. Thank you very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. And, you know, I'm looking at your, uh, uh, you were kind enough to send us a copy of your book, and uh, we, we've been looking at it over uh, the long weekend here. And I, I'd love to get into it, because one thing that struck me uh, initially and throughout your book is the lesson that we have this great window um, into the cosmos, which you really wouldn't assume when you visit uh, when you visit Yellowstone. You're there to recreate. You're there to see some great sights, maybe cast a line, go for a hike. But we have this singular, seemingly singular opportunity to really reach back uh, into the cosmos. And I'm not being grandiose at all, right? We can, because of the hot springs, it's a natural laboratory. Uh, can you can you describe a little bit of that? How we can um, how we can glimpse kind of the entire universe around us using the window of uh, Mammoth Hot Springs? Yes, you, you've really uh, captured the spirit and the essence of exactly uh, the, the concept here, is that, uh, you know, in, in, in the human condition of being alive and doing our best on this planet, you know, oftentimes um, uh, things that uh, we're part of in our everyday life or even parts of our life that we perhaps don't do all the time, but we cherish them like a trip out to the national parks, um, we don't realize exactly um, what a, uh, a precious and powerful entity uh, that we are interacting with called our planet Earth and all the life that's evolved on it. And so <clears throat> it turns out that um, uh, the earliest life uh, on planet Earth and likely throughout the solar system are these single-celled organisms, um, uh, bacteria, archaea, and eukarya, the three domains of life that actually live in hot springs and hot water. And um, uh, at uh, a place like uh, Yellowstone National Park, it gives us an opportunity to study uh, those kind of organisms, um, you know, uh, being near natural environments where there's a lot of hot flowing water is, uh, it's not a, it's not a, a necessarily a normal, um, uh, event in our everyday lives. But that's the kind of environment in which, uh, the earliest life on our planet, uh, actually evolved. So, um, uh, what, what a place like Mammoth Hot Springs does, it, it is indeed a, a window on the universe in terms of, um, not only is, uh, Mammoth Hot Springs and the other, uh, uh beautiful natural, uh, uh, features of Yellowstone. Um, not only are they uh, uh, beautiful and spiritual, uh, spiritual and meaningful, and of course, you know, all part of this uh, beautiful concept that uh, the national parks are America's uh, best idea. Um, um, not only is that the underpinning, of course, for 
everything. But even beyond that, um, these are environments in which scientists can come to uh, understand uh, truly um, the nature of how uh, life evolved, but also how life in everyday circumstances um, uh, actually operates and how it's evolved. And then taking those kind of fundamental concepts and applying them to some of the most pressing needs of society um, is a leap that uh, uh, Tom Murphy and I wanted to make sure that we begin to instill in, in visitors to uh, Yellowstone and other national parks. So in other words, we, you can go all the way back to the dawn of the universe in looking at these, um, what should I say, micro, microbiomes? Is that, is that how we'd say it? Yes, that that's correct. And, and so, uh, you, you know, we we, we call uh, uh, you know assemblages of micro or, microorganisms. We call them microbiomes. And uh, microbiomes now uh, we now that know that you know the the most abundant type of life on planet Earth are is microbial. Um, if a spaceship were to come and visit our planet, um, they'd find that uh, you know over sixty percent of the living creatures on planet Earth are actually single celled. And so the microbiomes are part of every single thing that we do in our everyday life. So that's the other thing. We can see back to the dawn of the universe, but at the same time, can you, can you explain a little bit of, of the impact it has on our everyday life as well? You bet. So, um, uh, uh, you know, we, we know that the, the, the planet formed at about 4.6 billion years ago. And um, uh, then at about 4 billion or maybe even a little bit older, 4.2 billion years ago. And that's billion with a B, right? So that's nine right. zeros. Absolute <laughs> number. That's a lot of years. Um, we know that life formed at about 4 to 4.2 billion years ago for the first time. And, um, uh, and then from that starting point, then life uh, 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 kind of jump-started and then became um, the, the evolved uh, beautiful biodiversity uh, that astounds us every day on our, our, our current planet. And so um, uh, this sequence of events from a, a very ancient Earth that had no life, and that ancient Earth actually was a very hot place, a very kind of... Uh, uh, dynamic but violent place. You had meteor impacts, you had a lot of molten material coming to the surface of the earth in the form of uh, volcanoes and eruptions. You had uh, oceans that were very different in chemistry uh, from the modern day oceans and the atmosphere was very different. In fact, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere mm. on the early earth. And then we had um, uh, life took hold and that life started, we believe, uh, in the deep ocean environments at hot spring vents that occur on the spreading centers of the ocean floor. And then from those starting points, then life was able to colonize the entire planet. And then it actually, uh, um, uh, some of the microorganisms um, developed photosynthesis. You know, if you say the word photosynthesis, you usually think about trees and plants. And indeed, those are major photosynthetic um, drivers on our modern day Earth. But on the earliest Earth, there were no plants and there were no uh, um, organisms like that. There were only microbes. And so the photosynthesis was actually evolved by microorganisms, microorganisms that we call cyanobacteria. Mm -hmm. And the uh, activity of those cyanobacteria, the, the, the photosynthesis from those is actually what oxygenated the planet. And so, and then once oxygen was provided from cyanobacteria photosynthesis, then that, that fundamentally changed in the course of evolution and how all of life uh, evolved from that point forward. So what, what a place like Yellowstone does is that the hot springs, the, the, the beautiful, you know, the paint pots and the geysers and the vents and the hot springs, <clears throat> these are all uh, environments that uh, uh, provide uh, different aspects to scientists of what that early earth looked like, that kind of dynamic, hot, violent place <clears throat> that had no no life in it. So that's one of the things about a place like Yellowstone. It's a, it's a window into the earliest earth before we had life and an earth that was very hot. Um, and especially hot water. <clears throat> and then 
Yellowstone also then um, still harbors that early microbial life um, that lives in, in these um, uh, what we call extreme environments, uh, environments that are very um, uh, hot and uh, um, very acidic in some places. And and then once life got a foothold within these hot kind of water environments, and we, we call them thermophiles, heat lovers, um, then uh, uh, all of life eventually really jump-started at about half a billion years ago, 542 million years ago. Life um, um, started to diversify and become much more like what we have on planet Earth in the modern day. So the thing about Yellowstone is we can go all the way from the earliest Earth, which was hot, violent, no life, to the jumpstart of life in hot spring environments, and then um, the beautiful manifestation of life that you see throughout Yellowstone, of course, with the bison and the wolves and the, the bears and the, the microbes and the plants and, mm-hmm. you know, just what, what, a, what an incredible uh, showcase of biodiversity. So a place like Yellowstone uh, gives you the entire run of uh, the earliest Earth to the modern Earth, and that creates this uh, contextual setting for science to be able to uh, come up with hypotheses and test them about not only the evolution of life and the origin of life, but actually uh, what are the secrets held within life that allow us to approach things in our modern-day society, things like finding new medicine Mm -hmm. uh, to fight disease or uh, to better extract energy uh, from the ground in the form of oil and gas uh, and make it less toxic uh, to the upper surface environment, or even how do we look for life in outer space? You know, it'd be great to find a a little green man and woman in a spacecraft, and who knows, that might happen, but really what the science is telling us is that we're in the search now for heat-loving, thermophilic microbes uh, that live in hot water and other planets. So it's an amazing spectrum, um, like you were addressing. If you stand on the boardwalks at hot, in, in Yellowstone throughout the park, you're actually a uh, witness to one of the most dramatic natural uh, laboratories that the planet's ever yielded for us to have this entire sweep from origin of Earth to origin of life to diversification of life to how does modern-day life uh, better cooperate with our planet and uh, uh, sustain it uh, for the future. So that's great. So when, when you're at Mammoth Hot Springs, you have this history book, but also you have this living laboratory um, that has applications to energy, environment, medicine, and even, as you mentioned, space exploration. So it, it's kind of an amazing thing. And by the way, it happens to be in one of the more uh, picturesque places in the country, if not the world. So you really have a lot happening right there. And I, I want to talk a little bit about those thermo, the thermal features as well that you mentioned. You know, If you talked about walking along the boardwalks, you, you write about the tree of life, um, in in the art of Yellowstone science. So what is the most recent understandings of the Tree of Life, and and how have these thermal features figured into the development of these understandings? Yep, and so the the, the concept of the Tree of Life is the following, is that um, we all um, fundamentally understand the idea that we have parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, and we may have children, and we have this idea of a family tree as it relates to human beings. I mean, um, uh, some people know more about their family tree than others, but everyone kind of understands that, you know, we, we all came from uh, parents and we all could have children. Um, and, and, and we have this kind of passing through time, you know, from older generations to younger generations. And so, and that's been a very major part of society, you know, going all the way back to the dawn of civilization and uh, the Egyptians, the Chinese, the, the, uh, the, the Middle East. I mean, all the, the great civilizations on our planet have all had the, 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 the human family tree 
uh, very uh, prominent in terms of politics, the distribution of wealth, and what have you. So imagine then, if you will, a scientist saying, <clears throat> I'd like to take that concept of a, uh, a human uh, 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 tree of life, if you will, a human uh, chart of descendancy going from parents to offspring. And I'd like to actually apply that to everything that's on our planet so that um, we could stand there and say, I know how you are related directly to a sequoia, a hippopotamus, a microbe living in your throat called streptococcus. This is ca causing you a sore throat. I'd like to be able to um, know exactly how you as a human being are related not only to other human beings, but to every single living thing on the planet. And so that's what the tree of life is. And um, the, 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 the tree of life, uh, the, the, the quest to understand this actually started back uh, in the 1600s in Holland when the first uh, very crude microscope was made by uh, um, a fellow named Lohenhoek. And um, uh, once that there was a device that allowed us to see the invisible world around us, see tiny organisms. Um, the average diameter of a microbial cell is about one micron in diameter. A micron, there are one million microns in a meter. So imagine one millionth of a meter. That's the average size of microbial cells. And so we don't see them in our everyday lives, yet they're every place. They're all around us. They're on top of us. They're in us. They're in the ground. They're in the air. They're every place. And so um, that really, that quest to, to understand something about this, this hidden microbial life, but then also how all of life uh, starts to fit together, started, um, like I said, in Holland in the 1600s. Um, then in, uh, in Germany, um, uh, there was a, a, a professor named um, Hackel, and uh, he came up with kind of a, uh, this concept of a, a real tree of life. He actually sketched something that looked like a tree. And uh, at the base of that, he called uh, the microbes, he called them Monera. And uh, he had this concept that there was a, a single trunk, and then that trunk went up and, and started diversifying, and then you ended up uh, using some of Linnaeus's, uh, the Swedish uh, scientist's uh, classifications of life. Uh, you went from uh, single cells up to more complicated single cells, and you get plants, animals, and fungus. Um, then fast forward now another 100 uh, or 200 years, and then uh, you, you get to the modern day where um, uh, there was a professor uh, named Carl Woese, W-O-E-S-E. Mm -hmm. And uh, Professor Woese uh, was here at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, and he had that same quest in mind. He said to himself, I'd like to uh, really take uh, the previous uh, established structures for our understanding of the tree of life and um, I would like to apply new DNA analysis techniques um, to that so we could actually measure and say, not only do we believe that things are related in this way, uh, perhaps based on color or shape or form or something, or maybe what they were eating or, or, or the kind of environments they lived in, some kind of understanding of the tree of life, which was done before, uh, uh, Professor Woese wanted to take that to the next step. And he wanted to say, how can we actually measure that relatedness so that we can put together a very, very um, uh, uh, accurate and robust tree of life that allows us to include everything. So uh, Professor Woese came to Illinois in the late 1950s, and 
he uh, was right at that uh, uh, breaking wave in, in, in technology uh, called uh, recombinant DNA um, uh, sequencing. So in other words, being able to look at the structure of DNA, its chemical composition, and uh, uh, understand how that you know fits into the, the, the picture of how life uh, has evolved on planet Earth. So he had the simple idea, he wanted to use DNA technology, um, analyze the DNA and all things that were living, and then use that as a, uh, a tool. Um, and so uh, he set about to um, uh, find out, you know, how do you go about doing that? And the problem, one of the problems is, was at that time is that there's about 24,000 genes that make up the chromosome of living organisms. And one of the questions would be, well, which of those 24,000 genes, those little pieces of DNA, should you measure to actually have a measuring stick, stick of all of life to make a tree of life? So um, he he uh, set off on a, a very courageous and uh, what ended up being um, a solo flight. Um, the rest of the scientific world was convinced that we already knew what the tree of life was. Um, they wanted to call them prokaryotes, the single cells that evolved into the eukaryotes, the multiple cells. But Professor Wos wanted to uh, actually you know just test that and 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 his actually original thought was he was going to be able to measure that and then confirm that structure of the tree of life, but. By going to, first of all, um, uh, the uh, the South Farms at the University of Illinois, we have a, a big agricultural school here, and he went down and he took a sample from a fistulated cow. And so I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, if you go to a state fair or something, but, uh, you know, there are living cows where you, they um, have, have surgically placed an opening uh, in the in the wall of their of their room of their stomachs, and you can actually put your hand down into a living cow. Um, it doesn't hurt it, and you can you know, touch touch the juices, the rumen that are down in the stomach of the cow. And so he took a, a sample of that, and um, at the same time he figured out which of the genes um, he can analyze to uh, to understand how things are related. The bottom line is that he found a third branch of life. So instead of just prokaryotes and eukaryotes, it turns out that the tree of life, as we understand it now, has three major branches or three major domains. And those are called bacteria, mm -hmm. the ones that live in your throat, um, uh, and other many other places. Um, uh, eukarya, which we're part of, it's us and fungus and pigs and, and dinosaurs and all those. But he found a third group called the archaea. And the archaea, which means the ancient ones, these are the ones that produce methane, and these are also single-celled organisms. And um, he first found the first, uh, the third branch of life, the archaea. He found it in the in the stomach of a fistulated cow here in central Illinois. And then his second stop to ensure that he was on the right path was he went to Yellowstone. Mm. And so he went to a couple of different springs, sampled the hot water, and um, uh, you know, beautifully and miraculously, he found uh, the third branch of life, the archaea. Um, they're living in the hot springs. So um, uh, from a very early stage, um, um, you know, Yellowstone has been uh, deeply wedded with this uh, quest and this thirst to understand how life is structured. So the, the three-domain tree of life, the bacteria, the archaea, and the eukarya, is now our understanding of what that structure of the tree of life is, and that's basically deeply rooted in the, uh, uh, the beautiful natural laboratory called Yellowstone National Park. Right, and you, you write about this in, in the book that you have um... – you have this natural laboratory in in Yellowstone that is that is almost unique. So it's it's not as it's it's almost a happy coincidence that Mammoth happens to exist in a national park. Um, you talk about uh, your predecessor uh, heading down <laughs> heading down to the ag school to 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 see what he can find in the fistulated cow, but uh, 
Uh, you write about how this happy coincidence of Yellowstone and Mammoth Hot Springs allows you to do your research, but also, again, as your as your partner Tom Murphy was able to very much illustrate, also in a very dramatic and picturesque way. So, uh, you know, that's the that's the next thing I want to I want to ask you, Bruce. Is uh, this is still a travel? Uh, we're, we're very much a travel podcast, uh, but we want to have this context. So. Uh, precisely what should visitors look for while they're in the park? Um, again, a, non, a, a yeoman, a non-scientist, uh, that they can get some insights and understandings you know, regarding the tree of life and regarding this natural laboratory. What, what can they use to really accentuate their, uh, uh, their visit to Yellowstone? Yeah, and you know exactly what you're asking about um, is precisely what uh, we want to uh, uh, bring across uh, as a result of the book, because you know this is the opportunity for every person who steps foot into Yellowstone to um, embark in and engage in um, this this uh, this step of, of, of not only scientific exploration but spiritual exploration and and just you know the engagement with the curiosity and wonder of our life on planet earth um you know a lot of our modern day society is based on instant gratification and it's a lot of lights and metal and glass and um uh this idea that you know it's a very kind of um give me it now and i look at it and then i incorporate it from a very cerebral kind of point of view um the the, the thing that visitors should do in Yellowstone is to, first of all, completely disengage from this uh, cyberspace uh, world that we're part of, <clears throat> because what Yellowstone offers is just the exact opposite. Um, it's a display of uh, nature with all its beautiful colors and shapes and forms and diverse types of things that are either both living and non-living, but are all intricately uh, connected with each other. Um, those things are all together there at Yellowstone. And within that beauty that you see in nature is also um, uh, a deeply rooted and deeply buried is truth. Everywhere you look in a place like Yellowstone, uh, there's, a, there's a, an ancient understanding that's been evolved through uh, uh, time of, of how life and earth have co-evolved together, how they've, they've worked to either have earth environments control uh, the origin of life and its evolution, but then, as we've seen many times, life has risen and actually changes the planet. One good example is, you know, we mentioned that photosynthesis was evolved by cyanobacteria, and the oxygen produced by that is what actually oxygenated the earth. So it produced so much oxygen that it flooded the atmosphere and the oceans. And that was this fundamental change in how the earth operated chemically and physically that then allowed you know, life to evolve. But then we're seeing this in the modern-day Earth, um, you know, with the excellent evidence of the human impact and the human driving of global warming and global climate change. This is where the human, um, the human <clears throat> piece of the puzzle is now rising to fundamentally change and control how fundamentally the environment is working uh, throughout the planet. So um, 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 you see all this happening at the same time in Yellowstone. Um, so one of the things to approach, I know that what we're describing um, is unexpected, uh, but of course that's what makes life exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things for people to think about when they're on the boardwalks is, first of all, um, in our everyday lives, we see and hear and feel and taste and smell things that are very familiar. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're walking to the grocery store <clears throat> and you uh, end up uh, having to cross a street with a stop sign 
and you make all kinds of assumptions that, oh, here's a car coming, there's a stop sign, I hear noise, I see people, and if I walk out in this intersection right now, I presume that that car will follow the law and stop at the stop sign and not run me over, right? So there's all kinds of things we process, um, and I call this being citizen scientists to survive and operate in society, but it's all based on seeing a bunch of things and feeling and hearing and tasting and and engaging with things that we really know a lot, which is pavement, cars, stop signs, other people, that kind of stuff. Well, when you're on the boardwalk at Yellowstone, what you're confronted with is confronted with is all types of wonderful things that you have no familiarity with. Um, flowing water that has its own kind of shape. You know, we don't think about water having virtually its own shape. Well, the waters in Yellowstone, as they flow out of the springs and the geysers, <clears throat> it actually has its own form and shape. And actually, waters there have their different colors. And those colors are imparted both by chemical changes, but also by the microbes uh, that live in those waters. Right. Um, you also see all kinds of shapes and forms, like at Mammoth Hot Springs, those terraces. Um, they're beautiful, right? Yes. But really, you don't really have another environment in your normal everyday life in which you see something that has thousands upon thousands of beautiful terrace shapes. Um, and then, of course, you have things like what we call the, the, the charismatic megafauna, right? The bison and the wolves and the elk and the, those these dramatic organisms. And they all have their lifestyles and, and their shapes and forms and, and their threats and interests and all these kind of things that go into seeing, you know, <clears throat> these large... Uh, 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 especially mammals and plants and, and, and insects and what have you. So um, uh, you're confronted with a lot you don't know. And I think that's really the, 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 the first place is that as, as, a, as a visitor to Yellowstone, you should go onto the boardwalk and begin to um, think for yourself, what are all the things I'm, I'm confronted with that are beautiful in and of themselves and are also very different from anything else I've ever seen. Yeah. And, once you think about those different things, then you start saying, well, why are they different? And what, what types of insights maybe could I gain from this? And, and that's really what we're trying to do here is bring, um, Tom and I feel strongly that every person on planet Earth is a citizen scientist. We don't feel that science is something that only a few should or can do. We, we see science as a, a basic truth and it's a capability that every single person on the planet does all the time, whether they want to admit it or not. But art is the same way. Every person on the planet does some kind of an art, and, and art and science are both trying to uh, be these expressions of where have we come from, who are we now, and where are we going. And the experience in the boardwalk lets you be in that moment of art and science, and it lets you engage with the environment in a way that you never do in your everyday life. Right. Well, look, I think, and I agree, and I think what you're talking about as well for a visitor is the scale of Yellowstone National Park, the, the time scale of Yellowstone National Park. So I think what you're describing is you can either look at that from a geological perspective, if you're looking at the strata on the terraces, um, if you're at the Mammoth Hot Springs and you're, you're thinking, uh, thinking about what we talked about before about the microbiomes and, and, and uh, the origins of kind of the cosmos even. But then you can look at the biological time scale if you want to look at the megafauna uh, and you want to think about the ebb and flow of the bison and in the American West and reintroduction of wolves, and you and you're right. I think and look, this is where Yellowstone doesn't have a monopoly on this. Where you can contemplate scale in a lot of the national parks. And that's something that Danielle and I and the kids have thought about a lot. Whether it's on Zion and and we're looking at uh, 
we're looking at the the curvature of the river and how that's changed over time. Or we're heading to the Grand Canyon here. Obviously, for uh, we can think about yep. time scale in a big way. And in, in a few in in a few weeks, we're heading there. Uh, so I and I think it's just special that you're right that this this um, cross section of beauty art, but also the science. It gives one that appreciation and it lets you step again in our modern. You know, I'm projecting. I, I think you were saying this too. In our modern society, where everything is. Uh, the last tweet or the few seconds instant gratification to contemplate um, the scale of the cosmos is, is a gift, right? And it's a gift where you have that, if it's a living laboratory that you can't recreate anywhere else, uh, what a place to do it. So I, I, uh, I, I applaud you for all, all the, uh, all the work that you and Tom have done. And again, it's a, it's a lovely book. I, I do have a, another question here to, to close on, and it, it's an undercurrent that runs through your book. You address it directly, but I want to give you a chance to, to talk about it on the podcast. And uh, there's some personal history here. I remember when I was in eighth grade, I was in an earth science class in New York, and uh, the local news, I guess it was a slow news day because the local news that night, that night uh, led with um, – Yellowstone caldera overdue for mega eruption. You know, one of those, if it bleeds, it leads headlines. And, you know, it, it, it scared the hell out of me, right? Matter of fact, it was the advertisement for the 11 o'clock news. They were going to talk about it. And they advertised that at 530 news. Didn't tell you what, how the earth was going to end. You had to tune in at 11 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and I was just in eighth grade. I, was, I didn't stay up till 11. So I, uh, I distinctly remember asking my earth science teacher, who's still, by the way, a good friend, and a and a big park patron, by the way, uh, I asked him the next day, and he and he, he waved it off and, and made me feel better about it. And it was a little bit of a you know don't don't believe everything you read, but uh, truly we do hear this pop up every now and again about the Yellowstone caldera, and it's you hear things it's overdue and and uh, for a massive eruption and the world's coming to an end, and and so you address this in your book a little bit, but I wanted to, and I think that you can, this is a nice through line to geological time scale and a lot of the things that are going on. Do you want to talk a a little bit about this? Are we, uh, should I not be buying uh, uh, green bananas at the grocery store? Are we, uh, (laughs) what's what's going on? Yeah, well, that's a a great insight, Brian, and and so um, the way that um, uh, I approach this uh, when I teach about it, um, it, and again, it goes to the, this, this basic theme we've been talking about of, of how to approach our natural park, uh, national parks and how to approach uh, the, the beauty and, and truth of nature. Um, uh, you, I, I believe it, it's really important to cast it first as a, a large-scale context, right? So um, we have this thing called the supervolcano, Yellowstone. It's the largest volcano that actually erupts through continental crust. We have larger volcanoes that erupt underwater, like the Java Plateau in the, in the uh, bottom of the ocean. But in terms of volcanoes that, that come through the crust of the, uh, of the Earth, um, uh, uh, Yellowstone's the largest. And um, the context here, uh, let, let me just draw, there, there's like two or three lines of context that need to be drawn, but then I think it'll answer your question directly, is that first of all, um, uh, the, the majority of planet Earth, if you look at the entire planet looking, let's say you're standing on the moon and looking back at the Earth, um, uh, one of the, the, the major ideas of planet Earth is the vast majority of, of Earth is actually, if you look at it, not just on the surface, but what it's composed of inside, the vast majority of the planet is actually made of molten rock. And this molten rock is called the mantle. And it goes all the way from the core of the Earth all the way up to just underneath the, the crust of the Earth. And it's by far, you know, the largest volume of anything that's uh, 
present on planet Earth. Now, that large volume of molten rock, it's always moving. And right at the contact between the core and the mantle, you get uh, the generation of these large plumes of very, very hot molten rock that comes shooting up uh, like a tower up through the mantle, and then they burn through the crust. And we call them hot spots. And so the Yellowstone supervolcano is actually a hot spot. And it's been going on uh, as a hotspot for about 16.2 million years. And that's context number one. How is it formed? Well, it's generated by this hotspot that's very, very, very deeply rooted down in the mantle of the Earth. Point number two is that the crust of the Earth is always moving. You know, we have these things called plates and plate tectonics. And so the North American plate is always uh, moving to the southwest. And that's moving over, in this case, the hotspot. So the hotspot where the volcano is formed is stationary. And the plate of the Earth, the North American plate in this case, is always moving to the south, southwest and west. So what does that, ha- what does that create at the, at the surface of the crust then? Well, what that creates is a whole series of volcanoes. Because at any one moment, wherever the hotspot is, is coming up underneath the crust, it burns through it. And it actually raises the crust about a mile. It's amazing. And at the top of that mile kind of elevation change of uplifted crust, and it's uplifted because it gets so hot, um, you have a, a supervolcano. Then the, the continental crust keeps moving to the southwest. And as it moves, then the stationary hotspot just keeps burning through the crust. But as the crust moves, then the new supervolcano is going to be, in this case, closer to the east and the northeast. So as you move over that, you create new new supervolcano. You move the crust more, new supervolcano. So it's the North American crust moving across the uh, stationary hotspot. And one of the most famous ones of these that um, uh, most people in the United States know about for sure, but I think globally, are the Hawaiian island chains. And there you have a hotspot that's coming up through continental crust. <clears throat> but, you know, we have a chain of islands there because the Pacific Plate has been moving over a hotspot. So you have this one source to make um, to burn through the crust and make a supervolcano. And then you move the crust over and it makes a line of volcanoes. So that's exactly what's happened at Yellowstone. But the line of volcanoes actually started 16.2 million years ago. And it started over um, in the uh, uh, kind of Oregon-Nevada borderlands area. So it was all the way to the west, and it's at the western edge of what we call the Snake River Plain, which, of course, is very famous in, 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 uh, in uh, cowboy lore and song. Uh, but it's this beautiful plain that runs. Um, it looks like a big smile, actually. The, the west side of it runs, and it goes down through Boise, and then it, up, it runs up to the northeast. And then at the very end of that is Yellowstone. So if you go from... Uh, the northern part of Nevada then all the way through Idaho and end up at Yellowstone, there's a whole series of volcanoes. And they go from oldest in the west to youngest at Yellowstone. And so each one of those volcanoes, there's something like about 15 uh, volcanoes, um, and uh, um, uh, Craters National Park um, uh, is a a gigantic uh, lava field that was one of the eruptions of this that occurs right in the middle of the Snake River Plain. Um, As you go from Nevada to Yellowstone, you have this series of volcanoes that get younger and younger and younger and younger. And so when you get all the way to Yellowstone, then we have these volcanoes that erupted, you know, half a million years ago. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, and, and then, you know, uh, going into, um, uh, you know, very, very young volcanic activity compared to what we have all the way over Nevada. So the answer to your question is the context is it's a, it's a hot spot, the migration of the North American plate over the top of it, 
We have this series of volcanoes that have been carefully dated using isotopes, um, using uh, chemical techniques to get their age. And we know the age, and the ages are very consistent. They go from about 16 million, then to 12 million, then 10 million, and 8 million, and 4 million, and 2 million, and then all the way up to the recent eruptions in Yellowstone. So by taking the differences in the ages, we can extrapolate and make a guess. And our guess is that we still have quite a bit of time. We still have something probably on the order of, um, um, uh, you know, half a million years, um, you know, a long time, hundreds of thousands of years before the next eruption. It's possible that that's it's in that kind of ballpark. So, so our estimate is that the really big eruptions, where the volcano goes off and causes widespread destruction, you know, when, when the big volcanoes went off in Yellowstone, they basically um, uh, impacted and um, uh, really made life difficult all the way from Chicago to San Francisco. It, it basically, um, uh, you know, laid down ash and gas and what have you um, all the way across uh, the North American continent. And, you know, North America is called the land of fire and ice. And that's because we have these uh, ongoing glacial events. We have these ongoing volcanic events. And that's what makes it so beautiful here. But also, you know, there's moments when it's dangerous to be here. But we have quite a bit of time based on extrapolating the ages of these volcanoes along the Snake River Plain before the next eruption takes place. Well, that's, that's great news. And, and so it's, uh, you finally answered the question from the uh, whatever Ron Burgundy local news scared me as an eighth grader. But it, and you did it. <laughs> I'm half joking because you did address this in your book. But it's, uh, it's amazing on how that story pops up. And it, it probably... Uh, you know, not local news anymore, but now clickbait. But it's uh, it's important also to the through line of the geological scale of of what all we're dealing with and uh, and how this all moves. And we're living in a dynamic environment. And again, whether that's the as you said, the mega the mega uh, fauna uh, that's in front of us right now, or we're talking about geological time scale. This is uh, this is a, an important an important concept to have and, a, and a, an essential element to your visit to Yellowstone National Park. Well. Well, with that, you know, Bruce, thank you very much. Again, Bruce, Bruce Falk, uh, the author of The Art of Yellowstone Science, along with photographer uh, Tom Murphy. Thank you very much again for, uh, for joining us here, uh, Bruce, and, and we appreciate it. Looking forward to seeing you out there. You're very welcome. Thank you, and I look forward to seeing everyone on the boardwalks uh, the next time in the park. So, <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. Show notes and links to resources for this episode may be found on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. You may find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like the show, write a review and please tell your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us your comments at everybodysnationalparks.com forward slash contact. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag Everybody's National Parks on Instagram from the parks you are visiting. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.